Oh shit, here we go again. Welcome to the Millennial Mastery Podcast. Open your mind's eye. Do you like being slaves? Do you like being babies? Don't you want to be free? And men? Don't you even understand what manhood and freedom are? Rage was making him fluent. The words came in easily, in a rush. Don't you? He repeated, but got no answer to his question. Very well then, he went on grimly. I'll teach you. I'll make you be free, whether you want or not. Welcome to the Millennial Must Reads podcast. I'm Gabriel. I'm Jose. And welcome to our part two of Brave New World. So last episode, we were learning about the world and society that these characters inhabit. The caste system of Alpha to Epsilon work together to create a utopian society that's built on consumerism and hedonism. This is where John the Savage, our protagonist, finds himself as he's brought from an indigenous reservation to become the subject of research under the study of the outcast Alpha Bernard Marx. If this is your first episode, I would strongly suggest going back to Brave New World Part 1, as the first half of our story is discussed in great detail there. This is a very interesting part of the book, as we'll see the toll that John has to pay to live within this strange civilization, and we can understand why this book is really a millennial must-read. Damn straight. So, we pick back up in London. Remember that at the end of our last episode, Bernhard Marx decided to bring John and his mother Linda back to the Brave New World. So we pick up back in London. And the director, Bernhardt's boss, has a nasty surprise in store for him. He's planning Bernhardt's transfer to Iceland. And he wanted to make it as public as possible. They really wanted to make an example out of Bernhardt to, to the others, to show them what would happen to them if they refused to assimilate. Upon arriving, the director goes into a tirade of the dangers of unorthodoxy and how he was a danger to others, how Bernhard was a danger to others. Like, can you even imagine what would happen if this deplorable wannabe alpha Bernhard corrupted other prime alphas with his nonsense ideas about individualism, meaning, and solid relationship? It would be chaos, dude. Like, why would we even have civilization <laughs> if people like Bernhard are trying to actively ruin it? So the director offers up a chance for Bernhardt to give in to reason and not to be transferred. You know, he was ask, pretty much asking him to beg on his knees for, for his job. Bernhardt, however, had that reverse Uno card up his sleeve, right? And right when he was about to be fired, he, <laughs> the director goes like, oh, Bernhardt, you're fired. And he goes like, no, you. <laughs> <laughs> he brings out John the Savage and Linda. And, you know, this, this causes an uproar among everyone in the facility because they told him, like, John, this, the, the director is your father. And Linda recognized him. And I even think, even though he was, like, kind of in shock still, that he also recognized Linda. And Linda, you know, she just runs towards him and starts screaming, like, oh, don't you remember me? You made me have a child. I'm his mother. He's your son. John is like, Dad? <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> Just like, Dad, you went out for cigarettes 15 years ago and you never came back. And this was a shock to everybody, including the director. He knew he was guilty, so he didn't 
straight up defended himself. He just, you know, put like his hands over his face and ran away from the situation. Immediately after that, he resigned from the embarrassment. Like he, he couldn't face anybody with that. He was like straight up laughed out of the room. He, there, there was this bit where everybody thought it was so funny that the director, well, it's just kind of ironic, right? The, the director of the entire hatchery of, you know, decanting babies and training them to be regular citizens ended up having a baby and a savage baby, no less. Like, huge stain on your pride. In this world, it was. And, you know, I, I kind of felt for, for poor John and Linda. Like, he straight up denied them in front of everybody. And this is really not a great form to be welcomed into the new world, right? You don't think so? I think that being being ridiculed and mocked like in your first entrance into the public is the best way to go in. Go in with your worst foot forward. You know, and I think Linda also took it really hard. I mean, they were kind of together back then. There were hints that they were they had like strong feelings for each other before she got lost in the reservation. And now he couldn't even look her in the face, you know, and, and John has struggled his whole life because he's unconventional family. You know, back in the reservation, he was an outsider because of his looks and because his mother was just so different to everybody else. A hoe, I think, is the word you're looking for. <laughs> A hoe. You know, and imagine you finally being able to meet your father just to be the knight in front of everybody like, I have no son. So you're, you're really starting to feel for John after that. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know what? After this entrance, uh, John is a very sought-after attraction by all of the high-caste London. And Bernard is happily riding his coattails right up the, the social ladder. And Linda, however, is ostracized again. I mean, being a mother is almost like they treat the word mother as a curse word. Unlike John, she wasn't a novelty. She was born within the society that they find themselves in. And John is a novelty because he's, you know, this citizen of the world government, but was raised in a savage reservation. She just was a failed person. You know, she, she, she got pregnant. And it, you can see how badly this affects her. Like, she doesn't really do anything except take Soma all day. And she's essentially just out of it. And isn't she like also really bad out of shape? Like her face is all messed up and she's fat and like her hair is greasy and Yeah, like she well, she didn't know how to I don't think she ever knew how to like wash herself or wash her son or repair clothes. So she was just like just generally disheveled. And yeah, like her her teeth were bad, her skin was bad. So she was just, you know, undesirable. She wasn't pretty to look at. Like John, John was John's really described as sort of that like Tarzan of the jungle type body with beautiful, beautiful hair and all this. And she's just she's just an ugly mom. <laughs> Not even a soccer mom. <laughs> Not even a soccer mom. So facing all of this, she essentially decides that she's just going to spend the rest of her days taking Soma and until pretty much she died, like there, there's a there's a doctor going in and saying, yeah, you know, usually we wouldn't let somebody take this much Soma, but, you know, she doesn't have to be productive and it'll definitely kill her. But technically, she's living longer because, you know, time slows down when you're taking Soma. So we're really giving her a longer life like this. And 
John is pretty distraught at her state, and he asks if anything can be done, but unfortunately, no rejuvenation treatment is available, and so she's just going to be allowed to stay in Bernard's apartment until she dies, pretty much. And now she's just out of the way. Nobody has to think about her anymore, and Bernard's plans start taking action. He starts planning gatherings and stuff like this to... Uh, get all these people in high society to meet the savage. And he started to notice that people are a lot nicer to him. They, he, they're more respectful of him. He doesn't have to shout at people to get what he wants anymore. He's getting popular with the ladies. He says at one point oh. that he's, yeah, he says at one point that he's had sex with six ladies in a week. Damn. I know, right? Player. And uh, Bernard is finally starting to feel comfortable within his allotted cast that he was decanted into. He really starts feeling like a true alpha. Lenina also became somewhat famous after her trip to the reservation, you know, and, and adding fame to her natural good looks really worked out well for her because everybody was after her now, you know, everybody wanted to be with her. She started dating A-list celebrities and was pretty much the it girl of the moment kind of like megan fox after that first transformers movie came out <laughs> oh my god yeah i think we should take a moment here and discuss how bernard is a fucking incel well so when we are introduced to bernard in the beginning of the book we almost feel sorry for him because he's he sort of made himself out to be this uh this loner this outcast he doesn't want to take soma people don't understand him and so you know you start feeling bad for him but then as soon as he starts getting a bit of fame you realize that the only thing that he that he was mad about was not getting what he had perceived that he deserved within society by being spilled out of the bottle as an alpha plus he believes that his privilege is to, you know, have sex with many girls and to be respected by everybody and for him to be this beautiful thing. And all he's had in, in, in his life is just this, these rumors of alcohol being put into his bottle by accident. And so when he finally gets people respecting him, he just loses all of that sort of outsider ideas like he starts taking soma he starts being more promiscuous and you can see that really the only thing that he was angry at was the the role society gave him essentially well i think his problem mostly is that he's just an entitled little bitch <laughs> like he he was born into the alpha cast right and to the winner goes the spoils so alphas obviously had a lot of ground to be successful, you know, and to be popular and to be respected and to be well liked by the ladies. And he just didn't have that, you know, and his colleagues did, but he didn't. So he felt like he was owed something by society. And now it was his time to take what was in his mind rightfully his, you know, take back the respect, take back the popularity, take back the ladies, you know, promiscuousness. Yeah, you know what? I think that this this portion of the book is when Bernard, we have this swap because originally before we meet John, Bernard is the protagonist of the book. 
And once we see that Bernard is actually just a whiny little bitch who thinks that, you know, he's owed everything by the world, by society, we see John take the lead role as our uh, protagonist. Exactly. And there's this key moment where this starts to happen. And it's when he starts to boast about his new game status to his old friend Helmholtz. Helmholtz was very disappointed in him, actually, for, for letting himself get drunk on that new popularity. Because just like we mentioned, it became too obvious that Bernhardt was just resentful. And he still cared too much about what people thought of him. So Hamholtz saw great potential in him, but also realized that he couldn't really overcome those failings and that wanting to belong. And that for him, like for Hamholtz, made him just an ordinary alpha. There was nothing special about Bernhardt anymore for Hamholtz. So later, Bernhardt writes a report to, to Mustafa Mont detailing John's experience with the new world. He takes the opportunity to try and like still lecture Mr. Mont, a world controller. And, and you can see that he's becoming really arrogant, like famous, definitely going up to his head. And it was a strange thing because, you know, he, he was really enjoying himself. He was taking all the opportunities he could. He was loving his new life, yet he kept being very vocal about his criticism to the society he still inhabited you know he was still being openly unorthodox in some aspect and i thought that was still like old bernhardt showing through the cracks you know that strong urge to be an individual still very present even after having this character shift no i think you're absolutely right i think this um th this was very strange to me the first time that i read it the idea that he still wanted to be openly critical of the world and sort of um, put off all of these um, heretical ideas to people and essentially having a captive audience to do this. But I, I do think that this is a little bit of the old Bernhardt showing through and also this idea that he's he feels superior to everybody else. I think he's always felt superior to everybody else at this point. And he's just showing them now that they have to see him because you know he's the only way that they can see john is he's showing them how much smarter he is and how much cooler he is than them because he has all these edgy ideas yeah that definitely could be one of the reasons you know they they start to talk with john about soma they're telling john what soma is what it will do to you and he straight up refuses to take any of it and you could say that it's maybe because he you know his mother was never a role model for him but i guess in this case she particularly was and not because it was something that he would follow but it was just like something he really wanted to avoid and he had this negative role model show him what the outcome would be if he would take soma you know he saw her getting hooked on it and just dreaming her life away slowly dying on a bed so I think he became very wary about this stuff and intelligently decided not to touch it. Definitely, definitely intelligently decided not to touch it. 
Meanwhile, uh, Bernard is taking John to many places, uh, such as Eaton, the school where Huxley used to work. And this is where John finds out how inhabitants of the New World see the savage reservations. Uh, it's essentially a portion of the world that they have deemed so insignificant that the world government doesn't even bother to modernize it. Um, John starts watching these videos of um, self-flagellation and praying, and people are killing themselves laughing, like they're bending over double laughing at the screen. And John's asking why they're laughing, and he gets the answer, because it's so terribly funny. And I think what maybe they find so funny is this concept of these people inviting suffering upon themselves when the civilized world avoids it by all costs. And we cut back to Lenina getting ready for a hot date with John the Savage. Everyone's always asking her what it's, what it's like to have sex with the Savage, and it's a question to which she doesn't really have an answer. Um, at this point, Lenina confesses to her friend Fanny, who's described as having a very kind, very round face. It's described as looking like a full moon, that she very much likes John. But John is being really strange and not being forward with his feelings, even though he's obviously into her. And she decides to take him to the feelies, which is sort of like IMAX 3D, but you can feel and smell everything as well. It's a very immersive experience. And the way that it's described is the movie is a very simple story, like sort of the Fast and Furious, um, as opposed to a movie like Enter the Void. Um, but it's also very pornographic in nature like the end scene of the movie is literally a foursome and <laughs> and the feelings he gets during this movie is a what they describe as intolerable galvanic pleasure so like it is a very sensual experience it is all about this um sensationalism right so so it's kind of like switching hands you know. <laughs> Goddamn. So Lenina and John get up from the movies, and it is apparent that John is way uncomfortable with what just went down. But, like, just imagine you've heard all of these great things growing up about this world, and you've been living in this, like, super conservative, hyper religious tribe, and you get taken to this, this new place where like the technology is super great and everybody's happy. There's no more disease. And you get taken on a date by this hot chick and that's what you go see. Like it would be the most uncomfortable experience ever. It'd just be a huge mindfuck. Points for directness to Lenina though. Like she obviously wants in his pants. So John starts talking about how awful stuff like that shouldn't be shown and how it was base and ignoble. And their date ends up with uh, John dropping Lenina off at her apartment where she thinks that they're going to, you know, get off and, you know, have some have some fun, get each other off. And he just dips and goes read, to read Shakespeare in his own room. And Lenina decides that she she needs to take Soma to relieve herself of the stress of whatever the fuck just went down. Like, she has no idea what she did wrong. She's like, well, I might as well just take Soma. And here we could see that they're obviously into each other. Maybe they even have some feelings for one another, but their expectations of what a quote-unquote romantic relationship between people should be are just too different. Way too different. So I think 
that this really shows how John is caught between the two worlds. You know, he's being an outsider and an insider at the same time. Well, I think I think it's more like John is an outsider in the tribe that he grew up in. And he comes to this place where he thinks that maybe he'll be able to fit in because of all of the great things that his mom said about it. And it turns out that he's just as different and other here as he was in the tribe. And it's, it's like he can't fit in anywhere. I think this is, this is something where you have this difference where originally in last episode, John and Bernard start talking and they have this almost feeling of a kindred spirit between each other of this, uh, this idea of, oh, well, we're both outsiders, but there's, they're very, very different. Like we've already discussed about how Bernard really only feels like an outsider because he does not get the things that he perceives that he deserves. Whereas John is just been ostracized by everybody his entire life. And he comes over here and instead of being treated like a human, he's treated like, like an animal in the zoo. Like he's, he's a scientific anomaly almost. And I think that makes him almost even more lonely than he was in the tribe. Plus, he has this moral code, you could say, that also doesn't really allow him to fit in. You know, he, he doesn't seek hedonistic pleasure. He doesn't understand consumerism. And that's, those are pretty much the two fundamental axioms of this new world. So he's just like lost. He doesn't get it. You know, he doesn't understand why everybody wants to go shopping all the time and why everybody wants to just be fucking one another. It's like too strange for him. Yeah, I think I think there's just this mental disconnect for for John of he he maybe had this expectation of what it was going to be like coming to a place where maybe he could belong and it was just the way that he was brought up. The it just doesn't compute. Nothing makes sense to him here. And I think that would be almost torture is coming to a place thinking that you're going to be you're going to be fine and it just turns out even worse than the place that you were so in the next scene bernhardt is trying to get him to come out to a party he organized you know because he always organized this this big meeting parties for john where everybody could come in talk to him kind of and watch him and be like oh you know we're going to visit the savage and this time Bernhard had invited the creme de la creme of society, like the big cheeses, except Mustafa Mont, were showing up to this party. And, you know, John just, you know, he, he had it. He, he had been doing these meetings for a while now. And this time he just refuses to play along anymore because he realized that, dude, like I'm just being paraded like a freak show. Um. I don't really feel like doing this right now. So he just goes back into his room and shouts some things in his native language to Bernhardt just to really make it clear that he will not play along this time. He's just going to be in his room and Bernhardt can pretty much go fuck himself. And this made Bernhardt really uncomfortable. You know, he had to go back to, to his party, like with his tail between his legs. And tell everybody, like, Ugh, excuse me, people. Uh, it seems like my friend John the Savage is, is not coming out today. I, I'm sorry. 
And <laughs> the response to this is just hilarious because every single guest just starts to roast the fuck out of him. <laughs> like they hold <laughs> no reservations whatsoever. Look at this dude. They just straight up go for the throat. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're in here with this <laughs> fetal alcohol syndrome person of an alpha. They're like, you sub-gamma ass, alcohol poured in the bottle ass, tiny ass, little dick ass, little boy. And, you know, after roasting him, they just leave. Fuck this shit, I'm out. Just, we're out of here. And during all this, you know, John is just upstairs in his bedroom you know, chilling on his bed and reading Romeo and Juliet like a rebellious teenager from the 16th century. <laughs> you wouldn't understand, Mom. Juliet really gets me. <laughs> They're really one for another. They're soulmates. And downstairs, we have Bernhard, who's just all alone on his sofa, crying because he realized that all his new friends, they were just sycophants. They were being nice to him for convenience sakes. They weren't real friends. They were just fake friends. And after a while, John comes out and tells him that it's better to be unhappy than to have fake happiness. But this doesn't really do much for Bernhardt. It's like, all right, thanks for nothing. So he just takes some soma to reduce the pain. Thanks for nothing, bitch. <laughs> Could have guessed that myself. <laughs> thanks for the insight. Oh my god. Honestly, this is probably the funniest scene in the entire book. Just everybody just going off on Bernard for being a dick. <laughs> They're like, you made us come here and sit through your bullshit TED talk about how all this dumb stuff. And now I don't, I'm not even going to see the savage. Like, fuck you, buddy. So we cut to Mustafa Mond, who's reading over uh, something called a new theory of biology, which he marks as heretical and not fit for public consumption because, and this is a quote, it might decondition the more unsettled minds of the upper castes, make them lose their faith in happiness as the sovereign good, and take to believing instead that the goal was somewhere beyond, somewhere outside the present human sphere, that the purpose of life was not the maintenance of well-being but some intensification and refining of consciousness, some enlargement of knowledge. And he says something that's very interesting. He says, what fun would it be if one didn't have to think about happiness? Now, what do you think this means? Because I thought that this was a really interesting line. I think in this particular context, it just means that his job is pretty much maintaining this status quo maintaining everybody happy no worries for nobody and just keeping them like docile sheep but you know he he realizes this that this is actually a good book that it makes you think that it makes you question things which can be scary and if something is scary it obviously doesn't bring happiness so that's why he has to throw it away yeah i think that we see here that Mustafa Mond is perhaps a true kindred soul to John, somebody who realizes that happiness isn't really the, the sum total of the meaning of life. So Bernard comes back to the real world from his Soma holiday, and he is again his old self. I think that once he realizes that people are only using him to get to John, he realizes that his preconceived notions of what he deserves will really never be his. 
And John remarks about how he likes Bernard much better this way. And Bernard's like, what, me being unhappy? He's like, yeah, you, you're just your old self again. He's like, I'm my old self because nobody likes me. Bernard still blames John for his fall from grace. And due to this, John will become a victim of Bernard's dick behavior. So there's a very interesting quote here. And I thought this is really poignant. He says, as the victim, the savage possessed for Bernard this enormous amount of superiority over others, that he was accessible. One of the principal functions of a friend is to suffer, in a milder and more symbolic form, the punishments that we should like but are unable to afflict upon our enemies. I thought that was just a fucking deep cut. Like, I know I have caught myself treating friends like absolute garbage because they'll put up with a certain amount of bullshit from me, essentially. And it's something that you don't even think about doing, but it's absolutely true. Helmholtz and Bernard make up again, and Helmholtz meets the savage for the first time. First off, Helmholtz is just like a genuinely good dude who can forgive out of the goodness of his own heart rather than from, quote, the grace of a Soma holiday. Like, he, he's just a wholesome dude, and I want him to be my friend. <laughs> right? Like, he sounds like such a cool dude. Honestly, he does. And secondly, and maybe this is just a bit more important than the previous point, is that people are then implied to only be able to be forgiven under the influence of Soma. It makes them even more emotionally stunted than previously imagined. Like, you know, it takes emotional maturity to do that kind of stuff. And the fact that none of these people have gained that step in life is terrifying when you think about the psyche of the masses. Like, imagine everybody just being too immature to be able to forgive somebody out of the, the goodness of their heart. And they just need drugs for that, for something as quote-unquote simple as forgiving someone. Yeah, like, I, and that's the thing, is like, forgiveness isn't easy but it's also not fucking rocket science like it's it's something that we can, we're all able to do and the fact that these people can only forgive or it's implied that these people can only forgive under the influence of a drug like it's like it's like me saying like i can only be friends with you when i'm on molly like <laughs> i've had friends like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah but they ain't good friends are they so, when Helmholtz and John meet up, they hit it off almost immediately. John recites some Shakespeare to Helmholtz, and you can just see how emotive Shakespeare is for Helmholtz. And perhaps this not only feeds into our observations from um, our last episode, but it also ties back into the paper Mr. Mond was reading, into the idea of people needing to search for something, some higher meaning than the maintenance of well-being. John and Helmholtz are busy becoming best buds. Bernard is super jealous of Helmholtz's and John's instant camaraderie, and he strikes out at them in the only way that he can. He constantly pops in with inane comments and general dickery, like to the point where they have to like threaten to throw him out if he says anything else. Like he he just keeps on just like sort of putting in some jibes and just these stupid comments and like saying orgy porgy at the end of a uh, at the end of a poem because he can't like I guess vibe with the energy in the room. He can't like he can't even deal with somebody being a friend with somebody other than him. 
I think that that had to be hard for him, you know, watching like his quote unquote two best friends. And, you know, you could make the argument that John is kind of his hostage, but they seem to get along very well. I mean, okay, at least. And then you have his friend Helmholtz, and it's like when you introduce two friends that just become immediate best buddies, and then you just sit there like, oh god, what have I done? <laughs> You're just in the corner <laughs> twiddling your thumbs. You're like, I guess I'll leave yeah. then. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 it must be hard, but also, like, don't be a dick to your friends. I feel like that's, that, that's, the, main, that's the main message of our episode today, guys, is don't be a dick to your friends. <laughs> Facts. Facts. So Helmholtz, for all of his love of Shakespeare, cannot bring himself to take the climactic moment of Romeo and Juliet seriously. So John is reciting the end of Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet like is about to kill herself because she realizes that Romeo killed himself because she thought because he thought that she killed herself. Yes, that's the plot of Romeo and Juliet. That's the second lesson of the podcast today is the plot of Romeo and Juliet. Bruh. But yeah, like this idea of killing yourself over not being able to have sex with somebody because your mom tells you to is just too hilarious for him to take seriously. And here we can see just how deep the conditioning goes. Like Helmholtz is by all the standard metrics a heretic. And yet he's still a part of the system and he can't really comprehend these concepts that make this particular work of literature beautiful. I mean, for as much as an individual as he is, like the brainwashing just goes too deep for some people, man, and they can never really shake it off. Hamholz being one example. So we cut back to Lenina, who's just, you know, working there on that grind. And she's being really sad about not being able to do the horizontal monster mash with John and accidentally forgets to vaccinate an embryo, right? And remember, she, she vaccinated them for typhoids and sleeping sickness. Mm -hmm. And she just forgets one. Like, oh, did I do this one already? I think so. Yeah, this one's fine. And this is such a strange part of the book because... Like the next paragraph is just describing, is briefly describing the life of this alpha dude who was just like living his life. And a couple of, you know, like 20 years later, he dies of sleeping sickness. And it's like the first recorded case in a century because Latina fucked up. <laughs> it's like this family guy cutaway. Yeah, I, I, I honestly loved it. Just like this idea of cut scene. This guy dying in a hospital. They're like, it was sleeping sickness. <laughs> <laughs> Who did this to me? <laughs> so she she's telling Fanny about her situation with John, about how they haven't slept with each other, for Christ's sake. And she, Fanny's, she can't believe it. It's like, dude, you're like the hottest chick in town right now. Why, would, why wouldn't he bone you? <laughs> Oh, God. But she gives him sage advice for the savage. She's just like, you know what? Jump him, you know, <laughs> just force him, make him want it. You know, I thought this was a bit interesting because here we can see that as much as there's physical attraction from both sides and maybe even romantic feelings, I think that Lenina was starting to obsess about John because like previously stated, People in the new world don't really have to struggle. You know, they don't really need to work towards something. And they don't know what it's like to not get your way. You know, the time between a desire and the realization of it is so short that 
Lenina is truly shocked that she has not been able to sleep with John. You know, just like a kid, like the more you tell them you can't do something, the more they want it. And you got to put yourself in her shoes a bit this time, because like you're one of the hottest chicks in town at the moment. Everybody's dying to take you out on fancy dates and be with you. And then there's this like Brad Pitt savage who won't give in to your moves. You know, it has to tear, like it really has to have a toll on your ego, I would say, and tear you on the inside to be in that position. And I think that's exactly this rejection that is making her obsess about John. So with this new plan, she just, you know, decides to pretty much <laughs> confront John about this and goes to visit him. And, you know, they, they start talking. They're being very civil. and. You know, John confesses that he also wants to be with her, but he wants to do it in his own terms. So first, he sees them as a weird version of Romeo and Juliet, you know, which is every teenager's response to a difficult relationship, like the time Harley Quinn and the Joker got glorified. Oh my god, honestly, cringe, but I did the exact same thing when I was in middle school. Like, I was like, I was like, oh, I'm Romeo and you're Julia. And she's like, did you ever like read through it? And I'm like, nah, but like, it's a love story, right? She's like, (laughs) yo, thanks for bringing up deep, deep gay lore. (laughs) Right. And a la Shakespeare, he wants Lelina to give him some sort of trial or quest that he must overcome in order to earn her love so that he could prove that he was worthy. Right. And, you know, Lenina's really confused about this. Like, yo, I just want to get laid, man. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, it's like, give, give me a trial. Let me earn your love. And she's like, let me sit on your face. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's your trial, boy. <laughs> yeah, boy. So he was still citing Shakespeare to her. And Lenina's like, okay, you want rhymes? So she starts to sing some pop song of the moment to prove John that she could also spit some mad bars. <laughs> and this was actually enough to, to weaken John for a moment. And we get this beautifully written kiss scene between John and Lenina where like everything's perfect and the lighting is perfect, you know, and they are like touching each other and her lips are red and full. And it's like, it's very well written actually. After this, John does not know how to handle the situation. And his first instinct after that is like, we kiss, so what's the next step? We get married, right? So he proposes to her, and she's not Lenina's understanding. like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> what's the next step? We fuck. <laughs> exactly. And here we see just how different the, the expectations of a quote-unquote relationships are for, for these people. You know, she starts to undress, because that's, I guess the way she has been conditioned, it's like, okay, that's what we do after kissing. And as she's undressing, you know, John John is completely overwhelmed by the situation, but he still has like this very strict moral code. So he just goes like, Be gone, fuck! And he like pushes her and actually scares the shit out of Legina. He, he calls her a whore. You know, things become kind of violent. So she just panics and locks herself in the bathroom. And John is just yelling at her and pacing through the room. 
And, you know, and Lenina's head is like, oh, my God, like people were asking me what it's like to be with a savage. But I really wasn't expecting this. Like, this is a horrifying and traumatic situation for Lenina. So John's pacing about the room. He's muttering under his breath. And in his rage, he gets this call. And it seems that his mother has gone to the death hospital and she's away to die at any moment. So he rushes off to the death hospital and he's trying to speak to his mother who's staying in the back end of the ward. The nurse that attends Linda is completely surprised by this. Why would somebody come visit a dying person? Why was John sad to see Linda on her deathbed? Death in the new world was nothing to grieve over. It was expedient as everything else. Not even the people in the death hospital were, were sad to be there. And I think this has to do with the way that these children are being brought up. Essentially, we saw when they were in Eton, kids were coming back from a field trip from death conditioning. So essentially what they would do is they'd go to one of these death hospitals and they would have all of the children, you know, surround all of these people while they were on their deathbeds and they conditioned them to enjoy going there because when somebody died, they'd get chocolate ice cream, all the best toys were there. And so when it comes to, you know, people dying, they don't feel as grieved as a normal person might feel. And also, of course, we have to remember the uh, role of Soma in society. Soma is what kills Linda at the very end of it. She, she's been essentially dozing off into eternity forever and then just keeps on going. So perhaps the idea is that when you're a kid, you're conditioned not to think too much about, or maybe you're, you're rewarded when you go to this, these death hospitals. And then when you're an adult, you're almost taking incremental doses of death as you, you know, take your soma. And so when it comes to embracing eternity at the end of your life, maybe you're not so scared of it. And maybe you're not so sad to see somebody go. Maybe you're a little bit jealous even. Yes, I think that that could be definitely one of the side effects that soma could have on people, you know, just making them more accepting of of death mortality and fading into nothingness and that reminds me about the effects of psilocybin on dying patients yes absolutely so there was a johns hopkins study dealing with terminal patients terminal cancer patients specifically um, taking psilocybin and what they found out is that it can help terminal cancer patients experience less depression and anxiety even six months after taking it Two studies from New York University and Johns Hopkins University, so there's two, uh, two studies that came in from this, um, confirm a recent wave of research that suggests hallucinogenic drugs are an important mental health tool, especially when dealing with mortality. Uh, for those who don't know, psilocybin is the psychedelic component in mushrooms. Yes, psilocybin cubensis. I don't know if in this time of his life, Huxley already had some experience with psychedelics, but like we mentioned in our previous episode and his later part in life he definitely did he became a big fan of lsd and maybe this was like foreshadowing or maybe he had already had some context with those kind of substances but maybe it's a way of transmitting this message of like hey man death is okay like we're all here for the ride and you don't have to fear the end of it it's nothing to grieve over i think what it could also be is that Huxley 
didn't have you know any sort of qualms with taking things that he found personally okay and vilifying them so i think that he's of course vilifying soma uh he's he's gone through and saying you know people that take soma are essentially um psychological infants and so it could be that he saw you know these things as okay because you know we said he was friends with dr leary and a bunch of researchers with mescaline and lsd but I think that the idea of Soma and these I, these people being okay with death makes this world seem so much more alien than our own. And I think that's the that is the actual purpose of what he's trying to convey here. It's not that you know we're all we're all along for the ride because he didn't actually start taking um, mescaline until the early 1950s. I believe that was his first experience with psychedelic drugs. I think it's it, it's it's a bit sort of ironic that he's using you know a, a psychedelic drug as a a villain in his own book, but as well, um, Huxley was apparently in an open relationship and believed in free love for people like himself, but ended up vilifying the same type of free love in Brave New World. So he obviously doesn't have a problem with it. Yeah. So while he's while he's there, you know, he's obviously very distraught, and he's. They're doing this really emotional flashback to this time at the res, and and it's completely ruined by these kids coming in for their death conditioning. Just these, you know, bunch of Bokanovsky brats. So, you know, they're twins of 72, all coming in, swarming into the ward to do their death conditioning. And they're all like, oh, ew, look at her. She looks like a monster. Why is she so ugly? Is she about to die? Who are you? Why are you sad? Why are you crying? Why are you why are you crying? There's ice cream over there. Take it. What is a mother? <laughs> what is mother? <laughs> so John isn't having any of it, and he kicks them away from his mom. Uh, to which the hospital orderlies take great offense so and he just like throw him out. If Sparta kicks a kid, yeah, he 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 just keeps on like he like shoves them and kicks them away from from his mom's deathbed. Savage and. Savage, bougie, ratchet. Um, you had to say it, didn't you? You shit. <laughs> I really did. So the orderlies are taking great offense to this, and they threaten to throw him out of the ward if he interferes with their death conditioning any further. And so he essentially says, "We'll get them the fuck out of my mom's face, and we won't have a problem." And so they they all take they take them away and they're like oh you know who wants who wants chocolate ice cream and they're like oh yeah me 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 and um his mom gains consciousness for a second and she starts sort of hallucinating and she thinks that John is her boy toy from the res Pope and John takes great offense at this and he like starts shaking her and tried trying to remind her that he's john and at this point like she starts seizing up she can't breathe anymore and he starts like panicking and he goes over to the nurse and he's like i think i killed my mom and they get over to her and she's already dead when they get there <gasps> and yeah oof, play taps so john is completely unraveling now and the nurses try to get him to act with a modicum of decorum um, just, you know, in front of the kids because they don't want, you know, to set these kids back months of conditioning. And John looks up and he sees just this sea of little children, 
you know, eating chocolate ice cream and one of them like points to points to his mom and he's like, is she dead? And he doesn't even say anything. He just gets up. This kid keeps on following him and he asks her, he asks him again. He's like, is she, is she dead? And he just like pushes him over and leaves. Just he's he's had enough of it. And I think this is this is the point to say, you know, as as we close out on Linda's portion of this book as how Linda was really the saddest character in the book. She really just got the the bad end of every deal that she had. You know, she 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 went to uh the the Savage Reservation as a vacation and she got marooned there and she ended up having a baby. Nobody wanted to take care of her. She was alone, her parent her she was alone with her kid and when she finally gets to go back to society and before that like you know her hobby was just getting either drunk on mezcal or high on peyote you know and yeah she was like an outcast there she got beaten you know she had she re- never had like a stable relationship she just had like fuck buddies yeah i think that it was just this this life of despair and i think maybe the idea is that you know linda was a a character that pretty much wallowed in despair uh, ever since she was stranded at the reservation and maybe it's because she could never uh conform to the moral standards of the people within the savage reservation and so she tries to keep on living out her life as she would have you know when she was in the real world and a combination of not having soma to you know distract her from the sad times of you know living a meaningless existence and being ostracized from the society that she was living in or living on the outskirts of just led to this sort of downward spiral of this this human being and it was just it's very sad to see that's that's the end for somebody that just got the bad end of the deal all the it time. Is. And the thing is, like, she didn't even try to adapt while being in the Savage Reservation. And when she came back to the world that she already knew, you know, she was outcasted for being an M-word, M for mother. <laughs> it's like, or, I mean, my life is done. The best thing I can do right now for her was just to take Soma until she died. And that's exactly what she did. So it's a tragic ending to a tragic character. R.A.P. Linda. Yes, rest in peace, Linda. Rest in power, Queen. So the, I think maybe the the, the whole thing about it is that, you know, every single character in this, maybe uh, like outside of Henry Foster and Mustafa, no, not even Mustafa Mon, I think literally every single character that we meet is a tragic character, you know, as, as much as maybe they think they're happy. Maybe outside of Henry Foster. I think Henry Foster's living the life. But outside of him, everybody else is just not happy. They're not, like, even if they think they're happy, they're not living, you know, they're not living their life to the fullest. They're they're living this meaningless existence. And, you know, they either either die or they realize that is their life. And that's what they're doomed to live out until the end of their existence. Brave New World's really fucking depressing once you think about it. That's the fourth lesson. Anyways, so John, on his way down from from the hospital, runs into a Soma distribution. You know, there were daily Soma distributions for the lower class. 
and they were all orderly standing in line to get their fix for the week. And, you know, John saw this and realized that Linda just didn't die. You know, like I mean, she did, but he realized that Soma was the thing that truly kills her. And angered by this and by seeing how these people were slaves to the substance, he decided to free them from their fake happiness. He says it's poison to mind as well as body. And that was the quote that we used uh, at the beginning of this episode. So he proceeds to just take these packs of Soma and throw them out the window. He starts to argue with the mob, but he just gets booed and he keeps on throwing it. And this actually starts a riot. Like people are not putting up with this shit. It's like, you will not take, you can take our freedom, but you will not take away our drugs. I mean, a mood, a vibe, for sure. And this starts a riot. People are getting really riled up. So they call Bernhardt, like some security officer, like, yo, your savage friend is, is starting a riot here. And Bernhardt arrived with Helmholtz. And this is another weird part, because like this riot just turns into a street brawl. A brawl is surely brewing. You know, and then it's like, Bernhard hiding in a corner and Hemholtz and, and John just beating up everybody like back on back like a Bud Spencer movie. Honestly, like, again, what a fucking legend. Like, Helmholtz needs to be He's my friend. The best character for real. So, yeah, you know, they're, they're like in the street brawl in the middle of a riot. And then the police comes in and there's, you know, like the anti-riot police of this new world and they start dispersing the crowd with you know here in the real world we have tear gas but in this world they use soma vapor and this this gets a really interesting effect on people because they said like tear gas you know you, you, you just, it just makes you leave it makes your eyes burn it makes your throat sore it makes you cough you know you, you just get really uncomfortable but with soma vapor you know, you just get really chill, man, and you relax. And it's like, hey, why, why was even mad? You know, what's the reason of me being mad? Let's just all get together. And people start hugging and kissing each other. And they just line up and have like funky dances. Damn, dude, I wish we had that in real life. Like, imagine not being tear gassed in a riot, but being so my guest. Like, I, it had the potential to turn a riot into an orgy. And I don't know how well that is. Like, is that something we really want? Maybe, maybe not. That's that's a question for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> email email us at millennialmustreads at gmail.com and tell us if you want to turn your riots into raves. Um, no, you know what? There was something that was really interesting here as well. So they had this like sound box. So they have this uh, music box and they turn it on and this voice begins to speak. It's called the voice of reason, the voice of good feeling. Um, the soundtrack role unwound itself in synthetic anti-riot speech number two, medium strength. And it's they have this like orator on it and they're saying like, friends, why are you upset? Like we don't, we're, we're just wanting to have a good time. Why, why are you, why are you not being friendly with each other? And it's so compelling to these people that even like the police and the that are having gas masks so they're not being affected by the soma are getting teared up by like the emotive 
speech of this of this guy. So instead of like, you know, big megaphone that's like disperse now or you will be shot at with rubber bullets. I don't know. I've never been to a riot. You know, they it's it's just this this very empathetic way of, you know, getting people back in line. Yeah, so they they just like said they just turn uh, they have the ability to turn a riot into a tame impala concert, which is pretty dope. <laughs> <laughs> but still, uh, Bernhard, Hemholtz, and John they get arrested. And at first, Bernhard was having doubts about it because they ask him like, "Are you with these people?" In his mind, he has doubts about it. Like, am I really? But he actually decides to do the right thing. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm part of that posse. So he, he gets arrested as well. Yeah, you know what? There's this there, there's quite a funny bit where like the sergeant of the police department comes up and he's like, are you are we going to have to anesthetize you? And he pulls out the strap, but the strap's a water pistol. Like he, he holds the water pistol menacingly at them. And it's just like. So imagine like somebody somebody pulls the strap sideways but it's just like that clear orange plastic water pistol that you get in the summer like that whatsapp emoji oh, exactly <laughs> when they changed it to be less violent like <laughs> oh gun violence drops to zero thanks to whatsapp as, as soon as this happens and john has this experience at the hospital I, I think that's a breaking point for his character. You know, this is where he truly is done with the new world. He had this high aspirations of belonging, of being a real citizen, of enjoying everything the new world had to offer. But he now sees the reality of this world for him, which is a world of, of cl rigid class division, of people who are slaves to a substance, who people who are emotionally immature and just plain and simple people who live meaningless lives and you know they're just all clocks in a machine they meet up with mustafa mond um after being taken to his place by the police and he asks john why he isn't enjoying civilization and John says, oh, you know, it's it's very nice, but, you know, there's there there's nothing, there's no art. There's no, you know, great things like like Othello or Shakespeare. And during this conversation, we find out that um, Mr. Mond actually does have uh, illegal books um, as a world controller, though he's allowed to break those rules because he makes those rules. And we ask, well, why is having books illegal? Well, Mostly because they're old. There's no use for old things, especially when it's beautiful. Beauty's attractive, and we see this idea of not wanting to um, attract people to old things because there's no use for old things anymore. It's ending is better than mending, you know? Helmholtz weighs into the conversation, and the three of them, even though they're fans of the arts, conclude that Art without a message is just idiotic and meaningless. And it's, well, the kind of art that exists in the new world. None of the stuff that's in this new world is something of real beauty. Nothing really moves you. It's just basic, you know, entertainment that goes to just the, the, the skims the very top of your brain and just stimulates, you know, your, your action and sex and 
uh, thrills and stuff like this, but it's not, you know, addressing any sort of real issue. And we see that, you know, people don't understand old stories. And it brings us into the quote that we used for the intro to episode one, where he says, you know, there, you can't have tragedies without instabilities. The world's stable now. And so there's no use for it because nobody would understand nobody would understand Othello because nobody understands instability anymore. And that is the price that is paid for stability is you lose art, you lose beautiful um, literature made by Shakespeare. Nobody will understand it because you have created a society that will not, you know, fall victim to instability. And uh, John asks him, well, you know, why, why do you have to make everybody, you know, all these different casts? Why do you have epsilons and alphas and betas and gammas? And they, they say, well, society wouldn't work like that. Essentially, if you had everybody that was an alpha double plus, if they were doing epsilon minus semi-moron work in the factory, just doing some, you know, simple task for eight hours a day, they would just lose all will to live anymore because it's not, you know, it's not going for the conditioning that they that they've received as alpha double pluses. A society of alphas can't work due to the nature of alphas. They they they're too independent. They're too individual. Whereas, you know, you have um deltas and gammas and epsilons who are all created from the same embryo, so they're all twins of each other. Whereas alphas and betas are come from one embryo. And so you have this individualism baked into their very biology, and it just doesn't gel with the way that their system works. And in fact, they even tried an experiment that tried to see what would happen when you have a society run by pure alphas. And within six years, there was a full-scale civil war. And after nearly 20,000 alphas were killed, the rest, the, the survivors, petitioned the world controllers to take control of the area again. And it comes to a very interesting quote where they say, The optimum population is modeled on the iceberg. Eight-ninths are below the waterline and one-ninth are above. I mean, do we think that a society of alphas could have ever really existed? I mean, if they were so smart, why didn't they just agree that there was no need for a government? Like in 1984, like why didn't they just create something new? Right, because in 1984 you had like that argument uh, where they said that if people got too smart, they would realize that there is no need for power to be concentrated in the hands of a few. So you know, if everybody was so smart, like the alphas, you could ask the question like, what would drive them to to become a to to even be in a civil war because you would assume they would have the same conditioning right i think that's the problem is that they 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 are born with or were they unconditioned no i think the problem is that they were conditioned so they're conditioned to believe that there are people that exist below them and in that they you know they they have everybody even even the people below them perform essential tasks but they are less than essentially and so when you have to create a society where everybody's equal you can't have you can't have that ready baked in inequality 
to do the you know the tasks that an epsilon or a gamma would be conditioned to do so maybe that's that was the biggest problem is that even though they were very intelligent they were hamstrung from the outset because of their baseline conditioning that could be i mean it's a, it's it's a theory at least and uh why have citizens do this awful work you know this mindless epsilon work or you know delta mechanic work if if their society is so advanced technologically why even have people work well first off people within their castes don't really find the work awful in fact they're incredibly happy doing you know the simple work that they do and the labor that they do keeps them from spending too much time and leisure because when people are given too much free time they just take a lot of soma. They even did a, an experiment in Ireland in the book, Brave New World Ireland, not real Ireland. They had this uh, experiment where they only gave them four hours a week of work, and the rest of the time they were allowed to do whatever they wanted. And literally, all they did was sit at home and take more soma. Like nobody wanted to do anything else. Like they were completely content to just do that. And I think maybe that's the, the 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 largest problem is you know when you are conditioned into a meaningless existence you have to escape it and that's the reason that they have soma and so you know these people have to take soma or else they have to deal with the real shit of you know crushing the crushing weight of existential dread <gasps> it's pretty much better to keep them hooked to the machine so they can just exist but not really live damn i know right it's just it, 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 I think this is the thing is, you know, when you're looking at the at the surface level of the um, society of Brave New World, it seems better than 1984. And I guess to a degree it is because people are happier, but it's still just as insidious as the um, as the party, you know? Um, I mean, even science is dumbed down as much as possible. Science is dangerous and so must be chained and muzzled. Uh, Mond was actually a physicist in his time. Uh, he was a bit too good for his own good, and he started to conduct illegal experiments and nearly being sent to an island himself. Every change is a menace to stability, and so it just has to be closely monitored. We find out that Helmholtz and Bernard will be sent away, just like Mustafa Mond was almost, and that these places are actually full of like-minded individuals where people have been considered too self-consciously individual for community life. Um, a lot of people that are unhappy with orthodoxy are there. And it's at this news that Helmholtz begins to see it almost as a blessing in disguise rather than a punishment, where, like, you know, Bernhard hears that he's going to be sent to an island and immediately freaks out because he's not going to be, you know, where he, he believes that he should be. And Helmholtz sees this as an opportunity to meet like-minded people. All right, so this is this is actually very merciful from them because you know you could assume that if every change is such a big menace, why wouldn't they just kill them? You know, I think they even mentioned that they could, but they don't really go into the details of why they don't. So it's it's a strange it's a strange thing because you have like this totalitarian regime that could obviously just get you vaporized, style in nineteen eighty four. But they don't like they have they let you live a happy life until you die. Well, quote unquote, happy. 
Yeah, I'm not actually sure. Uh, perhaps it's just easier, you know? It, it could just be, you know, the, the path of least resistance to send them off to an island where they'll not be a, a bother to anybody in real society than to, you know, kill them and take them out of the office and, you know, do, I don't know, dump their body in a river or something like that. Who knows? But I think perhaps that the, uh, the, the only reason that they didn't kill them is because it's, you know, it's not absolutely vitally necessary that they kill them. You know, like I could, I could understand if somebody was, you know, like falsely conditioning kids or something like that, like that might be a reason to off that dude. But really all they're doing is being a little bit more, you know, individualistic than other people. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's more like a prison sentence instead of a death sentence. Yeah. All right. So this conversation gave us a quick view into Mr. Mr. Mont's head. And it showed us that he isn't really happy where he is. You know, he loved science. He was a free thinker. When he became a world controller, his priority was on keeping people happy because he really saw it as a necessary evil. And we talked a little bit about this before, but here we can really see how Mustafa Mont and John are kind of kindred spirits because they both realized that even though happiness might be important, it shouldn't be the end goal of, of life. You know, that there are more things in life than just happiness. And, you know, for, for Mustafa Mont, like mentioned earlier, he saw this as a necessary evil and he even sacrificed his own happiness because he prioritized other people's happiness. And John has this kind of moral code that not necessarily prevents him from being happy, but has other things that are more important in it where he doesn't prioritize happiness as much. And they get into this real deep conversation where Mustafa Mons talks about the books that he has in his safe, one of them being a Bible. So they talk about the role of God in society and they talk about how they have become independent from their relationship humans had with God previously. One of the reasons for this is that they were prosperous and people didn't fear loss, like we mentioned earlier. And because everything belonged to everybody, even people, you didn't have to wish for a lot more, you know? So there's like this part of religious longing that falls out. And they also were constantly young and they had no fear of death or things like sickness were something obsolete. Even the realization of your own mortality was fixed or at least dimmed through Soma. So again, that would close the gap on a thing where something like a God concept could emerge. Even with deep philosophical and existential questions, again, you had Soma to patch over them. You know, you could just take a holiday and don't have to worry about these things. Mustafa Mont also tells him that in a stable civilization, you need a good amount of pleasant vices, but they perfected that concept through conditioning because people were so brainwashed, they couldn't help doing what they had to do, but were also brainwashed into believing that what they were doing was so pleasant that there wasn't a need for temptation. 
temptation that could make you act in an unwanted manner. You know, so you're constantly in a state of bliss. It's like, yes, everything's great and I'm doing these terrible things, but they're still great. You know, like I love working in the mind 10 hours a day. And to this, John argued that you needed to struggle to really overcome an issue that you couldn't just get rid of all the unpleasanties of life, that you really had to learn how to deal with them with sadness, with loss, with fear. But Mr. Mon explained to him that you know, they in this world, they really preferred comfort over John's version of a real life. And to this, John claimed that it ought to be a right to be able to experience all these things. You know, he really demanded the right to be unhappy, the right to be afraid, the right to grow old, the right to wonder where we all go after we die. For him, it was just such a vital part of living, having all these fears and doubts and unpleasant feelings that he saw them as a right, you know, like something that everybody should have and that should be a vital part of society and something that people shouldn't live without. And to this, Mr. Mon just tells him that, you know, he's more than welcome to claim that right. They're not taking it away from him. And here we come to this philosophical dilemma about, you know, the, the, what would you rather? <laughs> so would you rather be free or happy? Because that's what this conversation was all about. And for me personally, I don't think they're mutually exclusive because I think freedom also encompasses the, the freedom to be happy and you know the freedom to, to have all these negative feelings. And I don't really see a way in which you can be completely happy but not necessarily free. Because again, that includes the, my own personal will as a human, you know, human will. But in this world where everything's so conditioned that you don't really have a free will, I guess that that's the alternative. You're in a state of pleasantness the whole time, but don't really know why and can't really escape it. I, I think that there's a there's something to be said about, you know, there's um, the idea of, you know, happiness versus freedom, because um, I think that there is, especially, I keep on going back to America because, well, I mean... <laughs> Boy, you're, you're not very patriotic for being an American. <laughs> man, I am, I am not proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm going to be tear-gassed by cops. So... I think that, you know, there, there's so many Americans that are so happy to be an American and they have stripped themselves voluntarily of their own freedoms, their own personal liberties in pursuit of, you know, keeping this, this American, American dream alive. And so I think after a fashion, you could say that, you know, there are, there are certain people who would absolutely sacrifice their freedom to be happy you know it's it's not a, a very far stretch to think that somebody would do that you know i asked a lot of people when i was preparing for um these episodes well would you rather be free or happy and a lot of people said well i'm not actually sure because i don't feel like i'm very free right now and you know maybe maybe if i was happy i'd, I'd at least feel a little bit of fulfillment in my life you you need to reconsider the people you're hanging out with. Man, I think I think it's just like it's it's just that Scottish vibe of like, you know, low key low key despair. 
but yeah, I just thought I, I thought it was a it was an interesting you know question to to bring up because obviously you know happiness and freedom are, ex- are extremely mutually exclusive within this book, but you know if we had the choice, like which one would you choose? Well, after after that chat, you know, with Mustafa Mont, all of them got exiled. So uh, Bernhard was sent to some place. Helmholtz was sent to the Falklands, I believe, and uh, John was sent to this old, lonely lighthouse in the English countryside. Yeah, and you know, there, there's a bit right before they part ways. John is vomiting in the bathroom, and Bernhard and Helmholtz uh, ask him what's wrong. And John has this bit where he says, and I quote, he says, I ate civilization. I was poisoned by it, defiled by it. And to purify himself, he actually purges his insides, the remedy that was used in the um, indigenous reservation. And this is where we really start to see in real time, like this slow downward spiral of John. He hated the reservation and he hates this new world even more. He's an outsider to everyone. And so he just decides that solitude is better. And so when he when he moves out, you know, he takes he takes stuff to keep on purging his insides and he takes a couple of bedcloths and a couple of clothes and that's pretty much it. And while he's here at this lighthouse in solitude, it's pretty much what he wants, you know. He he hunted, he starts to grow crops and he starts repenting for his perceived sins through physical labor, uh prayer and self-punishment. So there's this, uh, especially when he starts thinking about Lenina, there's this uh, bit where he's imitating Jesus on the cross and he's holding this crucifixion pose for, you know, almost hours on end and he's in excruciating pain while he's begging for purity. And it's honestly kind of a bit disturbing to see this sort of need for discomfort. And I mean, why do you think that John feels the need to be miserable? Well, I think one of the key topics of this book is obviously conditioning and for the people in the new world they get like this pavlovian conditioning from from the hatching facilities but i think that john is also very much conditioned and brainwashed in a way and not through the quote-unquote modern standards that we see in the new world but through shakespeare you know he has a very strong flair for the dramatic for tragedy and maybe he sees himself as this tragic figure from a novel that has to go through punishment and repentance to you know get into some sort of zen state and you know maybe that's that's his way of achieving happiness through misery you know it's like when when people tell you oh you know um, you got to appreciate the lows so the highs feel better. Maybe it's that, but in a, like that attitude on steroids and self-flagellation. Yeah, it could be. Um, and also, I think, I mean, the thing is, he keeps, on, he keeps on saying his sins, but the only sin I could think of is him lusting after Lenina. And so maybe, maybe it's also this, this uh, conditioning from, you know, growing up in a very religious area of worshiping Jesus and 
I'm not sure if they had the Bible, but obviously they had some sort of idea of who Jesus was. Therefore, they must have had some idea of what, you know, God was, the Ten Commandments. So maybe like this idea of, you know, sexual purity or Puritanism is something that was passed down when being raised in this tribe. So maybe he feels that he's going against um, the God that he learned to worship when he was a kid. And he feels very guilty about that. And, you know, he flagellates himself to, to relieve himself of that guilt almost. Yeah, there's several ways that a lot of these things can be um, interpreted. A lot of it is left to the reader to sort of decipher. Exactly. And like mentioned, like we're not we're not scholars on this. We're just two dudes recording in our <laughs> closets. Yes. So sadly, however, this exile didn't last long. Um, some journalists found out about his whereabouts and they tried to interview him. And this was met with a lot of hostility. He takes the uh, he takes the whip that he's been using to flagellate himself and he chases them off his property. And so they stop coming after a while because, you know, they don't want to get hit by a whip. Um, but they ended up installing hidden cameras around his property and they made a film about him. He becomes famous again by, you know, this this feely documentary about the savage. And there's swarms of people that want to come through and meet the savage and see him flagellate himself and, you know, see him see this very strange thing that's just right on the right on the coast of England. So he's obviously become very famous from this Feely movie about him. And at one point, bunches of fans just swarm all over. They're taking pictures and videos. They're in like helicopters above him. They're saying like, oh, we want to see you whip yourself. We want to see you whip yourself. And during this commotion, he sees that one of the people in the crowd is actually Lenina, who's on a date with Henry Foster. and he loses it he rushes at her with the whip and henry foster obviously the 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 gentleman that he is is very afraid of what the savage is going to do to him so he throws lenina in front of him and runs away he was like this bitch empty <laughs> <laughs> so um he he starts brutally whipping her and himself and he's he's saying you know oh you're 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 a whore all of this stuff and then he starts beating himself because he's sad about it and it just and then he's he's saying kill it kill it kill it and then people are saying orgy porgy orgy porgy and then they're all like taking soma and hitting each other and slapping themselves and and it becomes this like huge um frenzy almost and i mean why why did this happen like what would what would make these people you know almost stir themselves up into a frenzy like this. I think John was obviously shocked at the sight of Lenina because his whole reason for going into exile, well, not his whole reason, but one of the big reasons is that he really couldn't handle his relationship with her, you know. And when he started whipping her and shouting, kill it, he didn't refer to her as an object, it, but he meant the flesh, you know, and like sin and lust. And she was the embodiment of those things that he so much despised in him like i think he really hated himself for being able to lust after her for wanting her so much you know in in this like in this like carnal sense 
And well, we know like John's mental state wasn't at its peak in this moment. And yeah, I, I guess he just lost it. And for the people around him, you know, because nobody interfered. They were just all watching this spectacle of him whipping Lenina and whipping himself. I guess this is like the closest to, you know, a meaningful event that they had in their lives. It's like, oh my gosh, this is happening. It's like a car crash, you know, like it's a horrible thing that is happening, but you can't look away. Like it just grips you. Perhaps as well, there's something to be said about, um, they, they talk about something called VPT or violent passion therapy. So what they essentially do is they, they will give you the feeling of hatred or disgust or loss, sadness, grief, love, all of this stuff, these regular emotions that you wouldn't really get in any other way in this world because you know people people are living sort of on a just a, a slow burn happiness all the time and so perhaps it's this idea of of spectacle of sensation of you know they they're they're always wanting to be stimulated and maybe it's that that idea of that search for stimulus has gotten these people worked up into a frenzy and so they're like oh he's doing it there must be something to it and so they do it themselves so then we have like a little bit of a time skip, a couple of hours, because you know, John passed out. And we don't really know why he passed out. It might have been from the commotion and from whipping himself. He might have gotten, there's strong evidence that suggests that he got soma gassed because he still felt the effects of soma after waking up. But all that we know is that he passed out and the next day he, he woke up and, you know, like <laughs> when you get a bad hangover, you try to piece together the events of the previous night and, and what had happened. And he remembered. He remembered what he had done. And unable to cope with the weight of his actions and the guilt of whipping Lenina, he took a rope and hung himself that very same day. A couple of days later, his lifeless corpse was found hanging in his lighthouse. And that was the end for John the Savage and the end of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Talk about a grim, grim, grim ending to a grim, grim, grim book. I don't think it was that grim, the book. The ending was definitely grim, you know, I was. To be honest, because I hadn't read it before, I wasn't expecting it. I was like, all right, John's going to live in exile and, you know, whatever, we're going to get like some deep philosophical message. But no, like, dude, he hung himself at the end and it's just, damn. I think, you know what, the first time that I read this, I, I was very sort of taken aback as well because it, it, you know, it doesn't seem like you're going to, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, there's a lot of buildup to it. but taking taking a look back through it like you know having somebody in a in a you know bad emotional state of you know constantly being being badgered by people you don't know about being treated like a freak show and an object of not being able to reciprocate the feelings that you're that you're the person that you love has for you or that they won't do the same for you 
um, it's enough to push anybody over the edge. And I think that the the biggest problem for John was that he was just he was a regular person in a strange world. But more than that, I think that he just never found his place. He felt like an outsider, like an alien in the Savage Reservation and went to the New World with hopes of finally belonging and fitting in. And that like failed completely. Like He saw that there was no place for him in this new world. So he tried exiling. It's like, all right, finally, you know, I, I couldn't live in these previous two worlds. I'm just going to live here by myself in my little piece of land, my own little world. And not even that worked out. So I think, you know, it's like there, there's literally no place for me in the world. Yeah, I, th I just think that it's everybody just has such a tragic end, you know, like John, John and Linda, of course, have the most tragic end of death. But uh, Lenina is this, you know, she's been almost used as a way to get uh, close to the savage in some ways. Bernard has definitely been used to get close to the savage and they threw it they threw him away as a broken toy after they uh, they realized that you know he it wasn't foolproof that they could see him if they you know if they talked to him and dealt with him um he was also an outsider and he couldn't ever deal with the fact that he was you know he was never going to get the things that he thought he deserved um, Helmholtz, all he wanted to do was create something meaningful, but his own conditioning made him laugh at the very things that he wanted to create because he thought of them as completely unbelievable. Uh, Mustafa Mond even had this huge world controller, incredibly wealthy, incredibly smart, but he sacrificed his own happiness of, you know, creating, of studying science in return for the responsibility of helping people achieve happiness in a sense and so i think that the people that are truly free within this world just don't ever achieve happiness it's every everybody has the tra has a tragic end in one way or another that was a very good point after reading this and after finishing it i still had the question of what happened to lenina because it's never really clear did he kill her in his fit of rage? Did he just like beat her up, whipped her, but you know, she somehow escaped when he got so aghast. And even if she escaped, like, you know, what do you think would would have happened to her? Like how do you think she just took Soma to deal with the trauma of being brutally whipped in front of everybody and betrayed by her date? Yeah, I think that um in my personal opinion. I think that John killed Lenina in a fit of passion, and that, I think that's what sort of threw him over the edge. It wasn't, you know, this. It wasn't the the spectacle before the nobody taking him seriously. I think I think that he killed the one person that he loved, and he knew that you know even if she was alive, he would she would never have the same feelings as he had for her. So when she died, he just, you know, decided to end it all. I think that she could have lived, but, you know, what the consequences for that would be, I, I think, like, she would definitely need some extensive soma therapy. Maybe that made her even more famous, you know, like the 
the hot chick who got beaten up by a savage. The thing about Lenina is that, actually, similar to Julia in, in 1984, she was also just, like, too brainwashed. She just found herself in these situations where, you know, she could meet John and she did become famous. But besides that, she was a standard girl for the metrics that they had in the new world. I think that she was really the only one of the main characters that we um, were introduced to that was very well and truly orthodox. And I think that, yeah, if she's a, but yeah, I, I just think that the way that they, the way that they imply it, like that he remembered everything that he did. And it's, it's either, it's either that he, you know, he was so met up and so he he was he had you know an orgy with the rest of the people or he killed lenina and they um they soma gassed him and everybody left so that nobody else would get hurt that sounds also like a reasonable theory again it's a fitting book for our first trilogy of dystopian novels so gabo any final thoughts on on brave new world Oh, do I? When I was preparing for this episode, I asked myself whether I would rather be happy or free. Uh, happiness, of course, was my knee-jerk answer. After taking a good, long look of what that might have wrought on my life, I absolutely would not have been where I am today if I just chose what made me happy in the moment. The freedom to be unhappy, to make our own mistakes, to brave discomfort, fear, disgust, and pain is what makes us better more balanced and wiser people at the end of those bad experiences. This world is supposed to be a perfect place. Disease is eradicated. Technology is obviously very advanced. There's no war. There's no poverty. There's no starvation. Most importantly, everybody is happy. This utopia is, however, tainted. The well is poisoned by the very structure that keeps this utopia functioning. A rigid caste system, electroshock conditioning to infants, and perhaps the most insidious of all, a deeply conditioned instinct to avoid hardship at any and all costs. John and Mustafa Mond have it very right. Unhappiness is, unfortunately, a very necessary part of life. It gives us the ability to create, to progress, to appreciate the good times even more. In striving for their maintenance of happiness, the members of this civilization lose the drive that separates humans from base animals. There's no progress, no pain in which to learn from, no old age in which to grow wise, no struggle to prove oneself. Indeed, an existence such as this is bleak and meaningless. This is why they must take Soma. Within a world of stagnancy, of humans reaching for their next animal urge, the mind of a sane man would be crushed by the meaningless of it all. This, I believe, is why John unravels. John is as close as we ever get to a sane person within the story, and he quickly spirals into rage and despair as he sees this world for what it is, a true, veritable hell. Damn. <laughs> Damn, son. Um, yeah, you know what? I did really enjoy this book, um, and it is a lot better the second time around. Just like 1984, if you read it as a, a younger person, I would strongly encourage you go back and read it for yourself again, because there's just so many things in these books that can only be caught at a, uh, with an adult eye, with, you know, the the experience of of you know your own life of there's some things that you just can't be taught 
You know, it's um, this idea of of loss, of being being treated like um, like an outsider. These things can only be grown with experience. And I think trying to understand these things as an adolescent and, you know, taking these themes into a taking these themes and trying to parse them out from a piece of literature like this, it creates, you know, you're not you're not really getting as much as you possibly could. So if you have read it before, please go read it again. And if you're reading along with us, I hope you enjoyed the ride. Thank you all again for listening and taking this journey with us. That's a wrap for our Brave New World episodes, but tune into our next episode where we will be discussing Brave New World Revisited, an essay published by Huxley in 1958, 30 years after the publication of Brave New World where he discusses some of his predictions and how time has changed the way the Brave New World is perceived. Are we closer to it, or did we move in the opposite direction? Tune in next time to find out. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. That's at Millennial Mustreads, or send us some feedbacks or suggestions for books. Our email is millennialmustreads at gmail.com. That was my co-host Gabe, I'm Jose, and we'll catch you on the flip side of the page. <laughs>